0: Can go here. <clears throat> okay. Whoops. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. So when we left on Friday, we were talking about autoimmunity, about the ability of not the ability, but the fact that sometimes the immune system can fall back and start to attack itself and we went through a whole bunch of different mechanisms as to why and how that can happen. And we were ending, we were just going to start talking about tolerance. And tolerance is basically an inactive state or the inactive state, right, of immunological non-responsiveness. And it's going to be induced by prior exposure to an antigen. So this is both natural and experimental, and it's a way that we can investigate and think about autoimmunity itself. So if we're thinking about tolerance or we're thinking about how tolerance happens or where tolerance happens, we've talked a lot about tolerance so far. We haven't called it, well, sometimes we've called it tolerance, but we've called it the ability not to attack self. So tolerance is either going to develop naturally And that's through education, T-cell education and also through B-cell education because those T-cells and B-cells are being taught to be tolerant of self-tissue. And with the prime example that we talked about with the T-cells in the thymus undergoing positive selection and negative selection, right? 100%, well, 100% of the thymocytes get into the thymus and only 1% or about 1% of them actually leave the thymus. So the vast majority of T-cells that are leaving the bone marrow as thymocytes aren't gonna make it into the periphery because they're gonna be destroyed through this tolerance mechanisms. Right? So we can do that naturally or we can do it experimentally. And by looking at experimental tolerance, that has given us great insights into autoimmunity itself. So an experimental tolerance, again, it's a state in which an animal will fail to respond to an antigen that would normally be immunogenic. So we're gonna be able to take that rabbit that we've been talking about, we're gonna inject an antigen into that rabbit, and that rabbit's not going to respond. It's going to fail to respond to that antigen itself. Now, a lot of people, when they look at experimental tolerance itself, eh, it's a little bit hokey. Okay, but it's the experimental system that we have. Right? It's our, it's and it is a good model system, even though some of the antigens that we have to use are a little bit wacky, and we'll talk about them in a second. It is the experimental system, right, using the mouse, that we were able to find out about autoimmunity itself. So, if tolerance fails to develop, or Tolerance is broken at some time in the future, and we talked a lot about how tolerance could be broken the other day when we talked about autoimmunity. That's when autoimmunity is going to develop. Right? So this is a pretty good experimental system. So antigens, the antigens themselves that can induce tolerance, we're gonna call them tolerogens, right? as, a, as, a, as opposed to an immunogen. Right? We've been talking so far about things. Right? to be able to induce lymphocyte activation as immunogens or just antigens themselves. So now we have a very specific term, and in a couple of minutes when we talk about hypersensitivity, we're going to get another specific term for a different type of 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 an immunogen. So, anything that can induce tolerance, we're going to call it a tolerogen, and to be able to induce tolerance, Tolerance is either going to be learned or it's going to be acquired. So in natural tolerance, those T cells are educated, so it's learned. And in experimental tolerance, it's going to be acquired because we're going to be able to manipulate the immune system by using these tolerogens to allow the immune system not to be able to respond to the tolerogen. The other thing about tolerance is tolerance is going to be induced more readily in immature lymphocytes. Clearly that's what we're talking about in natural tolerance. Those T-cells or those thymocytes, those thigh one positive, we'll call them immature T-cells, leave the bone marrow. They make their way to the thymus and as they make their way through the thymus they're going to become educated and those are about as immature as you can get. And maintenance of tolerance is also going to depend on the persistence of the antigen itself. So when you think about the maintenance of tolerance, naturally, right, in the natural sort of system, those T cells that have been tolerized, right, that have been taught to ignore self-tissue, they make their way out into the periphery and they are surrounded by the self-tissues. Right? So those same antigens that they were taught to ignore, right, they are coming into contact with all the time. Right? So those antigens aren't going anywhere. Those self-antigens are not leaving at all. They're not going anywhere. And it's going to be the, the ability of those T cells to break tolerance to those, right, to those antigens in the body itself that's going to lead to autoimmunity. So we have a bunch of different factors of these tolerogens themselves. Right. So things about the antigen structure, the dosage, and the route of administration are going to be important. Okay. This is, we have this very specific experimental system that we're going to set up. So generally, antigens that are introduced orally are going to lead to tolerance. We don't want to have our immune response to any ingested proteins that are necessary for nutrition. So think about what we're talking about here, right? We are allowing foreign proteins into our body all the time. All right, we've talked about this a little bit, right? We breathe them in, something happens, we're, right? they're going to come in through our ears, they're going to come in through our nasal cavities, they're going to come in through our eyes. We have all these defenses there to be able to stop them. but the major sort of antigens that we're letting into the body are going to be food products. So you take a bite of that apple. That apple makes its way into your stomach. It's still a foreign antigen. right? It's going to be plant proteins. Those plant proteins are broken down into proteins themselves. They make their way out of the stomach. They make their way into the intestines. There's are still plant proteins. We should still be attacking those plant proteins because they are foreign proteins themselves. They're going to be able to cross right, the gut barrier and make their way into the bloodstream to become food for our tissues, for our cells in our tissues. And we still don't make antibodies against them. If we did, if we made antibodies against all those proteins, if we made antibodies against all those amino acids, we wouldn't be able to use them for fuel. So this is a big conundrum. How does the body allow certain proteins not to be attacked, not to be eliminated, and other proteins to freely cross the gut? So this is another study that we look at. So generally, antigens introduced orally are gonna lead to tolerance, because we don't want to get rid of those proteins themselves. Intravenous administration of antigen can lead to tolerance. Before, when we were talking about the ability to induce an immune response in that experimental rabbit that we were talking about. Remember we, we took those antigens and we put them into an adjuvant and we injected that adjuvant under the skin of the rabbit. Right? And that adjuvant had some mineral oil. It was going to allow those proteins that we want to make an antibody to to, to linger right, in the skin so that the immune system will be able to recognize it. If we want to induce tolerance, we would take those antigens and we would inject them directly into the bloodstream. That would be intravenous administration of the antigen. So having the antigen come into contact with the immune system in the bloodstream is going to be able to lead to tolerance. The monomeric form, rather than the aggregate form of the antigen, is going to lead to tolerance. Remember that very first day or the second day perhaps by that time, we said what makes a good antigen? We said what makes a good antigen is a large protein, right, that's easily degraded. And now we know why, right? Because then the macrophages and all the other antigen presenting cells will be able to engulf, right, that large protein and break it down into peptides. But here for tolerance, right, the monomeric form is more important. Right? So if we take a monomeric protein and inject it in, tolerance will develop. This may be due to the absence of the co-stimulatory signal. It may due to the fact that the B cells and the T cells could be stimulated directly. The soluble form of the antigen right, is probably going to f- fail to be phagocytosed by the antigen presenting cells. It's going to be able, that failure is going to stop in the presentation of the peptides and it's going to be a failure to stimulate the T-cells themselves. So it looks as if right, these tolerogens are able to stimulate the B-cells directly. So it's also, it's almost like a, a, a mitogen sort of a response. The other thing is that very high or very low doses of the antigen are going to be tolerogenic. Right? You would think if you injected grams worth of protein intravenously, The immune system would have to be able to recognize it, but it doesn't, Depending upon the protein you're using, depending upon the tolerogen you're using, at a very high concentration and injecting it into the bloodstream, the immune system is going to ignore it, basically. We don't have a good feeling for why all these things take place. We do know that tolerance affects both B cells and T cells, right? That functional state of tolerance is going to be achieved either by eliminating the reactive cells, in terms of clonal deletion, or inactivating the cells that are able to be able to respond, could be clonal energy. We're not really sure why certain antigens are tolerogenic, but this is what leads us into the autoimmune field. And in general, T cells are going to be more infected, more infected, more affected than the B cells themselves, right? Because if we're going to turn off the T cells, just like we looked, and just like we had that diagram the other day on Friday that that showed the importance of the T helper cell as being sort of the major player in autoimmune responses, those T helper cells are probably involved in tolerance itself. Maybe T regulatory cells. Maybe the T regulatory cells are being stimulated by the tolerogens and they are turning off the, you know, the T helper cells to be able to stop the immune response. Okay. That takes care of autoimmunity. Let's move on to the third sort of problem with the immune system, hypersensitivity. All right. In general, hypersensitivity is going to be, right, a response that causes damage to the, and is an inappropriate response that's going to cause damage to the individual itself. And it may be a heightened response to the antigen itself, an improper response to the antigen. There are going to be four different major categories of hypersensitivity. And we're going to look at them right as we're looking at hypersensitivity themselves. Type 1, 2, 3, and 4. <clears throat> Everybody is probably familiar with type 1 hypersensitivity. IgE mediated hypersensitivity. Allergy is the predominant. right? Sort of hallmark of type 1 hypersensitivity. Type 2 hypersensitivity is antibody mediated cytotoxic hypersensitivity. Type 3. Immune-complex mediated hypersensitivity, immune complexes are going to be involved. And number four is cell-mediated hypersensitivity. We have a little more sort of familiarity when we talk about type four in a minute or, well not in a minute, in a little while or so. So, type one hypersensitivity. Type one hypersensitivity, IgE-mediated allergy when we were talking about the major classes of antibody molecules. And we talked a lot about IgM. We talked a lot about IgG. Eh, Not so much about IgA. Hardly anything about IgD. And I said we would come back later on to talk about IgE. Here we are, IgE, right? IgE mediator allergy. About 20% of us are affected. All right? We know that it's very important. Because there are commercials on TV about it all the time. Right? Antonio Banderas flies around like a bee, and tells us we should buy. I, I forget. I, well, they did a bad job because I forget what he sells. What? Well, sorry. What the bee sells? Right. So what was it called? What is it? Immunex, Nasonex, There it is. Oh, I yeah, see. It's working for some people. <laughs> they got their money's worth. So, right. 20% of the population. I know when I was a little kid, I was affected by allergies. At least that's what I told my father every time he told me to mow the lawn. Oh, I can't mow the lawn. I'm allergic to, to newly mown grass. Uh, yeah, he didn't buy that for very long. So, 20% population in terms of right looking at things. It's going to be induced by certain types of, of antigens. We're going to call them allergens it's the antigen capable of stimulating a type 1 reaction in an allergic individual. We have a very specific name. Same way we have tolerogens, now we have allergens. Okay. All the hallmarks of the antibody response are absolutely in place. Everything we've talked about. Memory cells, right? Having, making plasma cells, having those mature B cells be stimulated into antibody factories. Everything remains the same. The only difference is now the plasma cells are secreting IgE. So the class switch has taken place. We've gone from IgM, maybe we were at IgG at one point in time, but we've absolutely switched. And now we're making IgE antibodies. So now we're using the epsilon heavy chain. We have that same VDJ region, is still exactly the same, only now we're using the epsilon heavy chain, we're making the IgE antibody itself. Everybody has a pretty good idea about food allergies. Food allergies are in the news all the time now. Almost every single little kid in the world is now allergic to peanuts. For some unknown reason, when you go any place you go to now, anything you read that is a food product, right, it has that little warning label on it. You drive up to Dunkin' Donuts, the warning label is right there when you pick up your coffee at the drive-through. Some of our things may be contaminated with peanuts, we're not sure. Right? Everybody has to have that sign now. All the lawyers are out there saying everybody has to have that sign. Right? So when you look at certain sort of allergies, right? people have uh, allergies to milk products, to peanuts, to fish, shellfish. right? Wheat allergies are present out there. Right? A lot of them are early onset, anywhere from six to twelve months or so. right? Most of these start at about six months. Some of them right, are going to resolve Right? Things like allergies to milk will resolve by the time the child is about 5, so about 80% of the cases are going to resolve. When you're looking at peanuts, maybe only 20%, but to other nuts like tree nuts and sesame seeds, almost 100% of them are going to be able to uh, resolve. Again, we don't have a good feeling for why this is taking place, Right? for why in the last 10, 15 years or so, these allergies or the the, the, the presence of allergies specifically to peanuts and other things are becoming very prevalent in the population these days, right? So, if we're looking at the ability of this to take place, again the antigen needs to be bivalent, multivalent is better, univalent it won't work, right? The IgE, the FC receptors need to be cross-linked for the cells to be able to respond. When I put up a picture in a second we'll, we'll make sense of this. There seem to be no common characteristics linking all the allergens themselves. We know exactly what it is in the peanut that induces the response. We know exactly what protein it is from pet dander, from cat dander, from cat hair. We know exactly what the protein is. If we take all these proteins and we use our best sort of bioinformatic techniques and we say, all oh, right computer tell us what it takes to be an allergen. Right? Take all these proteins, scramble them all together and tell us what it is. The computer spits out, I have no idea. Right? So, it is not like there is a particular right, substructure of the protein molecule. There is not like there is a particular four or five amino acid sort of sequence that is the hallmark of the allergen. We have no idea why different proteins are allergens and different proteins are antigens. So what's going to take place on first exposure, when you're first exposed to this agent, nothing takes place. You don't even know but the allergen is going to be able to sensitize the B-cell to be able to release IgE. That IgE is going to make its way to a mast cell, and we'll talk about mast cells in a second, it's going to bind to the mast cell. And on the next exposure, the allergen is going to bind to IgE that's already bound to the FC receptors on the surface of the mast cell in the basophil, and that's when the allergic reaction is going to take place. So. Everything we've been talking about, right? That B cell in the periphery or wherever it is is gonna come into contact with an antigen, just like it would come into contact with any old antigen, only now it's an allergen, okay? The T T helper cell is gonna be able to deliver help just like it would normally do. It's gonna result in a a memory cell and a plasma cell, only now this plasma cell, this B cell, for whatever the reason, has switched to producing IgE. It's getting some sort of signal, right? Whatever those signals are. We talked about some of those signals before, right, that were switch signals, certain cytokines, certain environmental conditions inside the periphery, right, only now the plasma cell is making IgE. So it makes IgE, and those IgE molecules interact with the IgE receptor on the surface of a mast cell or a basophil. That's the first step. Now you come back again and you're exposed to that allergen and these IgE molecules are sitting on the surface of the mast cell waiting for the allergen to reappear. Cross-links the IgE receptor, those FC receptors on the surface of the mast cell or the basophil, and we get activation of the cell and the cell releases those mediators that are going to be able to right, cause the symptoms that we know of allergy. Why this happens, right, this is why this is a hypersensitivity. Right. This is why, in this case, right. it's a heightened response to an antigen. It's an inappropriate response to an antigen. Why should this antigen cause this to happen? We don't really have a clue. We have some ideas, but we don't have a clue itself. So if we're looking at what's taking place, it's the mast cell and the basophils that are involved. We talked a little about mast cells during the course of the semester as being a a very important cell that people are starting to investigate now. And mast cells are found in the linings, the linings of the nose and the eyes and the lung They're found in the GI tract and the skin. The mast cells leave the bone marrow and they travel to the periphery where they fully differentiate and take up permanent residence in these places. We don't have a good idea, hematopoietically speaking, where the mast cell comes from or, or 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 the derivation of the mast cell itself. We got a pretty good idea that it's sort of Right? Not a lymphoid cell, but a myeloid cell. It's probably coming from a macrophage-like cell, but we really haven't pinned it down yet. The same sort of membrane events that we talked about during T-cell activation are going to be active during uh, the activation when that IgE crosslinks. Right? We're going to activate phospholipase A2. We're going to make arachidonic acid. We're going to make prostaglandins and 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 uh, and. Uh, prostaglandins and leukotrienes, we're going to activate phospholipase C, we're going to get protein kinase C, diacylglycerol, so everything we talked about in terms of activation, remember when we talked about lymphocyte activation, we said we could cross off lymphocyte and we could put any cell we wanted to, well, cross it off and put in a mast cell, that's going to be able to take place. right? So the mast cells, the basophils, they have a surface IgE FC receptors and they have all sorts of granules inside. When the cells are activated, the granules are going to be able to fuse to the cell membrane, their contents are going to open, right, and then their contents are going to be released into the periphery itself. So if we look at the mast cell, the mast cell is becoming a very important sort of cell. Right? The mast cell was first identified in the 1800s. In the, in the early parts of the 1900s, about 1878, it was first discovered. And at that point in time, right, it was called a mast It's the German word for mast. And people thought that the mast cell was there to nourish other cells. Because when you looked at it, it has all these granules. So early sort of histo- histography. What would you call somebody who's a histo- Oh, <laughs> would you call them a histologist? So early histologists thought that they were nourish the cells and the tissues because they thought they were going to release, right, sort of uh, food products or, right, the ability of these granules to be able to allow other cells in the area, right, to be fed. They mature in the bone marrow. They make their way out into the periphery. And now that we have some pretty good cell lines and now we have the ability of the mast cell to be grown in tissue culture the same way we talked about sort of right uh, tissue culture sort of breakthroughs now we can start to see more and more activities that the mast cells are involved with right some people have found the ability of the mast cell to be involved with cardiovascular disease Right? Be able to stop inflammation in the tissues, to be able to be involved with host defense and stimulate inflammation when it's needed. Right? The ability to be able to interact with tumor cells and to stop tumor cells, right? or in some cases to promote tumor cells. Right? So as we get more and more information about these mast cells, we'll be able to figure out their role and how they're going to be stimulated during an immune response itself. But you can see here, they can release a whole bunch of different cytokines, right? Remember we talked about IL-10 as being an inhibitory cytokine, so that's how it's going to be able to limit inflammation. We talked about interleukin-6 and interferon gamma as being pro-inflammatory cytokines. It can release tumor necrosis factor and actually stop progression of tumor cells, right? Or it can release other agents to be able to help in tumor cell development itself, right, and a whole bunch of other cytokines that are going to have ability to have the mast cell participate in a whole bunch of different aspects of the immune response itself. So once these mediators are released, right, it is the mediators themselves that are going to contribute to our signs, signs and symptoms of the allergic reaction. So everything you think about, right? runny eyes, tears, cough, there you go, coughing, right? Everything that you can think about in terms of the symptoms are going to be brought about by the molecules themselves. We talked a little bit about histamine before, as a vasodilator and the ability to increase vascular permeability. So for increasing vascular permeability right, in the nasal cavity, we're going to get a lot of runny noses, we're going to get coughs, if we're going to get an increase in vascular permeability, right, that can contribute to watery eyes. All these things can be able to take place because histamine is going to be able to be released. It can dilate small arteries, and it can make areas redder. Remember, we talked about hyperemia in terms of histamine? And this is one of the aspects of histamine, the, right, the, the, the skin test that we can use to be able to see if individuals are going to be affected by the allergen itself. So people might have undergone a skin test at any one point in time. So you go to the allergist's office and the allergist has a whole bunch, but there's a whole bunch of little trays, right, that have all sorts of different allergens present. So that individual is going to take nanogram quantities of the allergen itself and they're going to inject it, right, right under your skin and they're going to look for the redness that's going to be able to take place. So here, in this individual, we're looking at right some tree allergens and shrubs and grass and mites and house dust. Here's our control. So for looking at our control, we really don't see much of anything, so this person isn't allergic to house dust, it's not introduced to mite, but here you can probably see right? we're getting an increase, we're getting this red whirl around where the allergen was injected, nothing for shrub, nothing for tree. So this individual is going to be allergic to some sort of grass, so now the allergist can go into right, the little box of allergens they have and take out all the grass and fucus and Kentucky bluegrass and all sorts of other types of grass uh, proteins that that individual, that that the allergist will have and we can do another test and then we can narrow it down, right, to see exactly what that individual is allergic to. We're going to do it with nanograms and we're going to do it in the skin because if we were going to do the test any other way, right, then we would induce an allergic reaction in that individual. Here we're going to just induce it in this small area under the skin, right? So that's how we're going to be able to use these allergens to do an allergy skin test for any sort of individual itself. So the histamine can contract bronchia and GI muscles, so that's where you can get, right, sort of of uh, nauseous and diarrhea from these uh, allergens themselves. We can get itching. Prostaglandin D2, right? When we talked about the prostaglandins and the leukotrienes. Prostaglandin D2, vasodilator increases vascular permeability. Other leukotrienes are vasodilators and vascular permeability. The the ability to contract the bronchia and the GI muscles the same way, right? All of these are going to lead to the symptoms. And then another sort of mediator is platelet-activating factor. If we take diacylglycerol and break it down one more step, we come up with platelet-activating factor, or PAF, and this is an eosinophil chemoattractant, so it'll bring more eosinophils right into the area, bring more sort of basophils into the area to participate in the allergic reaction itself. So. In terms of the effects of allergies, or the effects of the allergy, we all know what they are. Right? I'm sure everybody has had watery eyes or a running nose from some sort of allergic reaction. The local effects are going to be reaction in very specific target tissues or organs themselves. Right? We can get allergic rhinitis, we have hay fever, we don't think so much about hay fever now. Well. Maybe last winter we did when it was pretty warm and a lot of these right, plants lived well into December, but we've had a couple of hard freezes already. right? So a lot of the different sort of grasses and pollens haven't been out. But right, hay fever is going to be a reaction of those sensitized mast cells and those eosinophils in the nasal mucosa. This is probably the major sort of allergic reaction that everybody knows about, everybody has a feel with. We can get food allergens. Here are those sensitized mast cells, right? and the eosinophils are in the digestive tract, so when we eat something, they're going to come into contact. Things like bee stings, insect venom, those sensitized mast cells and eosinophils in the skin, in the dermis. Right? Some people have to take, some people are, are very allergic to bee stings, right? You have to bring an EpiPen with them, right? They have to bring epinephrine, and epinephrine is there to counteract the ability of the histi- histamine molecule, right? That's why you carry your EpiPen with you. And the other local effect that people can think about is asthma, right? Reaction of sensitized mast cells and eos cells in the lower respiratory tract. So it all depends on where this allergen is going to come into contact with the mast cells of a person who is right going to be uh, allergic to different sort of factions and different sort of products themselves. From the local effects, we can go to the real deadly systemic effects. Right? And this is the, this is what, this is the type of reaction that anybody with an allergy is totally worried about, or anybody in the population is going to be worried about. Right? The anaphylactic reaction. And anaphylaxis is an allergic reaction that's going to occur system wide. It's as if every single mast cell in your body, right, once the allergen gets into circulation, it's going to activate every mast cell or every cell that can be activated at the same time. This is anaphylaxis. System wide shock like symptoms and even death can occur. So imagine. Right? Every place in your body that could possibly undergo an increased vascular permeability, right? we talked about increasing vascular permeability, and the major thing we said during increased vascular permeability is right, that those gap junctions are going to loosen and a lot of extra fluid is going to make its way out into the tissue space. So imagine every space in your body with increased vascular permeability is happening at the same time. You go into hypovolemic shock. It means you have no more liquid in your circulatory system anymore. Because right? it's all gone out into your tissue spaces. I don't want to say you don't have any blood left. Right? You don't have any liquid portion of your blood left anymore. Right? So you go into shock. Your blood pressure falls. You're going to have a hard time breathing. You're going to have a hard time doing most anything because you don't have any blood anymore. That blood's not going to make its way into the the brain. We're going to be able to have to take that person and treat that person almost immediately once anaphylaxis sets in. So we have to be able to call an ambulance and get that person back as soon as you can right? By putting fluids back into the individual, probably by using epinephrine to counter the effects of histamine, right? And allow that individual to try to recover, right? You gotta, put, you gotta put volume, you gotta put liquid back into the circulatory system. You have to stop those mast cells. You have to stop histamine from firing, right? You have to start all those things from taking place. So There's a whole bunch of different drugs that are out there on the market right now. When I was growing up, there was only major one sort of drug that was out there, or that was developed. There was a drug that was called contact, and contact was an antihistamine. So when we talk about anti-things in this class, we think about antibodies. But contact was an antibody. Contact was just a chemical mediator that was going to counteract the effects of histamine. And that's what you could use. Right, when, you, when you felt your symptoms coming on, you took this contact right, and it was going to be able to interfere with the, with the ability of histamine to be able to do its thing. So that was the first generation drug. That's these drugs like Nasonex, right, that we're talking about are second generation drugs and what they're doing is they are interacting with the receptors here and stopping the IgE from binding to the receptor. So instead of, right, this first generation drug that was out here trying to get in the way of histamine and to stop this from taking place, these next generation drugs are out here and it's trying to prevent or they are preventing the IgE molecule to binding on to the surface of susceptible mast cells. The next generation, and they're coming soon, all right, I think the... The last set of trials for the third generation of allergy drugs have been completed and I think the FDA is looking very positively at them. And what they're going to do is, they are monoclonal antibodies, right? We talked about monoclonal antibody technology. They're monoclonal antibodies to bind to IgE molecules. So we're not even going to allow this to happen. Right? We're going to stop. We're going to clear all of these IgE antibodies by using monoclonal antibodies. So even if some of these IgE molecules get onto the surface, when these receptors start to recycle and they get back onto the surface empty again, there won't be any IgE to be able to bind to those receptors at that point in time. So that's going to be the next generation of drug. So they'll have to get a different B to try to sell us those sort of drugs. So when you think about an allergen itself, why? Why should we be at the risk of death for eating a peanut? Or for eating some shellfish or from drinking some milk? There's a whole bunch of different hypotheses out there. One of the major sort of ones is that it's an evolutionarily conserved mechanism that's there to protect us from ingesting bad food. Right. If we were out on the plains and we noticed uh, a very nice looking plant right. and the plants are going to present, right, that's what plants do. They present this nice sort of face to the outside world to sort of lure in, not lure in, but to bring in insects, right, for pollination. So, you see this nice plant, you decide that you want to be able to maybe take a bite out of the plant. A lot of the times those plants are going to be poisonous as well to be able to protect themselves from herbivores. So you take a, a bite out of the plant, you know, if it doesn't taste bitter, right? a lot of poisonous plants, a lot of poisonous things taste bitter, so you don't want to continue eating them, but it does. if it doesn't, so you take the first bite and you don't ingest enough poison to, to kill you. You come back again and you eat that plant again and now you have an allergic reaction to it. Now you're going to say, hmm, I ain't ever eaten that again. So really your immune system has saved you from death by poisoning. Any other ideas? Well, who knows, right? But again from a peanut, <laughs> right? When the when the when the rest of the everybody in the population, right? Is eating peanut butter and jelly when you're how old? I had my first peanut butter and jelly sandwich when I don't know, 5 years old. Why can some kids can't have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Why the immune system would respond inappropriately this way is unknown. Okay. Type 2 hypersensitivity antibody mediated cytotoxic hypersensitivity it's going to be antibody mediated destruction of cells by an ADCC type mechanism usually going to be red blood cells we've talked about it before transfusion reactions transfusion reactions are a type 2 hypersensitivity right detection of foreign ABO blood groups on the surface of the red blood cells themselves. If we have a a, a, a blood group A, blood group B, blood group C, different sort of glycoproteins on the surface of the red blood cell, when an inappropriate blood group is is introduced into an individual, antibody molecules are going to be able to bind and we're going to be able to destroy those red blood cells. So, transfusion reactions are a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. Another major type 2 hypersensitivity reaction is called erythroblastosis fetalis, right? destruction of red blood cells and death. It's called RH antigen incompatibility, right? RH is, is a minor histocompatibility antigen. We talked about MHC, major histocompatibility antigens. I said there was a whole bunch of minor histocompatibility antigens. The blood group, the ABO blood group products are part of the minor group. And RH, RH antigen. RH means rhesus. We found about this first in rhesus monkeys, right, when we were doing uh, experiments with the rhesus monkey. So, is a minor histocompatibility antigen itself. In erythroblastosis vitalis, right, the fetus is going to inherit red blood cell antigens from the father that are going to be foreign to the mother. So this can take place. So if you have an Rh negative mom and an Rh positive baby, the mother's antibodies could react with those RH proteins on the surface of fetal red blood cells. So, when you have the first baby, it's probably going to be okay. During childbirth, there's probably going to be some mixing of the blood between the fetal and the maternal blood systems. And if some of those RH positive red blood cells make their way into The maternal circulation into the into the maternal circulation, right into the mom. Then the mother's B cells are going to attack those red blood cells and destroy those red blood cells, right? A normal sort of right MHC. We talked about it before. Only this is minor, but the same sort of reaction is going to be able to take place. The antibodies are going to be able to bind to those infant red blood cells, those Rh positive blood cells, and we're going to develop antibodies to the Rh factor. So usually the first kid is going to be okay. It's the second child that's going to be able to be at risk. So if you have a a baby with the same individual, right? first pregnancy, everything's going to be okay. During delivery, if these red blood cells come into contact with the maternal immune system. During the second pregnancy, there's a pretty good chance that those immunoglobulin molecules that were first developed against the first pregnancy are going to be able to recognize the fetal red blood cells. And as those antibody molecules make their way across the placenta, they're going to interact with the red blood cells. So there's the erythroblastosis. There's the destruction of the red blood cells in the second infant itself. So the second pregnancy and third pregnancy, again, assuming, right, you're going to be pregnant with the same father or the same Rh positive individual. So subsequent pregnancies could come into jeopardy. So what we're going to do is we're going to use the drug Rogam. And Rogam itself is an antibody to fetal red blood cells. So we're going to take Rogam. We're going to inject Rogam into the mother's system during the second pregnancy the rogram is going to bind to any fetal red blood cells that may be in circulation at any point in time right so we're going to give it probably during the second trimester and then we're going to give it again 72 hours or so before delivery just as a preventive right just as a preventive thing it doesn't mean that it's going to take place but we're going to use it as a preventive agent so that any Fetal red blood cells are going to be destroyed before B cells can come into contact with them. So what we're going to do is we're going to have this take place. It's going to prevent B cell activation and memory formation to the second and the third individual. Well, not the individual, but the second and the third fetus itself. So this is what ROGAM is all about. And the other thing that can take place during type two hypersensitivity, drug-induced hemolytic anemia. We're going to destroy red blood cells, right? we're going to do it by ADCC. Red blood cells are going to result in anemia. It can be a reaction to antibiotics, things like penicillin. So the drug is going to be able to bind non-specifically to proteins on the red blood cell. Antigens can bind to the drug. And then through ADCC mechanisms, we're going to be able to destroy those red blood cells. An inappropriate response to things that are taking place. So that's type 2 hypersensitivity. Type 3 hypersensitivity, immune complex, mediated hypersensitivity, it's going to be mediated by the formation of antigen-antibody complexes, those immune complexes that we've talked about, and the ensuing activation of complement. So these insoluble immune complexes are usually removed by macrophages in the liver. It's the soluble ones that are harder to remove. Right? They're not the ones that we talked about before when they were getting in uh, and, and getting in the way of the kidney itself. Right? Because they're soluble, they're harder to remove. They're not going to build up any place. So the charge is also important. Right? A positively charged immune complex binds easily to cells and basement membranes this is where the damage can occur. We can get frustrated phagocytosis. Lytic enzymes can be released by the neutrophil and the macrophages themselves. Right, this immune complex activation is going to be able to put C3b on the comp- on the complex, and once that takes place, we can activate the complement system. So the complement system is going to activate right on the surface of the immune complex. Right, it's going to bring more neutrophils, more macrophages into the area. So if we're talking about Oh good, type 3 hypersensitivity, circulating immune complexes are important for this in certain diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. In other reactions to drug, it's a different reaction than penicillin. Here if we use high dose antibiotics, because we're going to get those high dose antibiotics and we're going to build up antibodies to high dose, right, to those high doses of penicillin. And we have an experimental system, it's called the Arthas reaction. It's a dermal inflammatory reaction because we're going to be able to inject antigen subcutaneously right into the skin and then we're going to have this localized immune complex deposition itself. So we need to be able to inject the antigen. Right? We're going to induce it by using this Arthas reaction. And the immune complexes, complement activation, and everything we were talking about before. All right, we'll get to type four hypersensitivity on Wednesday.